0: we'll all have these things in our ears, or maybe implants, that will instantly translate any language. So when those fearsome-looking fellows step onto our path on our trek through Papua New Guinea, our English will be perfectly translated into their tie Suddenly smiling, they will lower their weapons and invite us home to meet the family. That's the idea, anyway. And it's a compelling one. After all, We've seen computer translation go from laughable to pretty amazing in recent years. Once the technology gets good enough, our now-friendly villagers can just joke around in their Tayap, and we'll have no more problem understanding them than we do our friends back home.
1: In our last episode, we heard from language teachers and language learners on whether technology was the best way to learn a language. It left me still wondering...
0: If this technology is right around the corner, why bother spending all the time and effort to learn another language? Besides, even if we learn a language or three, there are hundreds of languages we might encounter in life. Should we just Pluto our Spanish class and learn piano instead?
1: Welcome to episode 55 of the America the Bilingual podcast. I'm Steve Levine. When I was doing research for my book, America's Bilingual Century, I realized that this technology question was so important, I had to devote a chapter to it. What you heard at the beginning of this broadcast was the award-winning narrator, Sean Pratt, reading from this chapter. You'll hear his voice throughout this episode as I share with you excerpts from Chapter 34 of America's Bilingual Century. I heard from more than one technologist that if I really wanted to know what technology has in store for language learning, I needed to do the week-long course at Singularity University, which is held in California, near Stanford. I knew that Ray Kurzweil, its co-founder, might be the one guy in America best equipped to
0: answer the question of whether technology would T-bone language learning. For starters, Kurzweil invented the first commercial text-to-speech synthesizer and the first speech recognition device. He was awarded the National Medal of Technology and Innovation, has met with three U.S. presidents, and received 20 honorary doctorates. Forbes magazine called Kurzweil the rightful heir to Thomas Edison. Oh, and Larry Page, Google's co-founder, asked Kurzweil to bring natural language understanding to Google's search function. Singularity University, or SU, says it is dedicated to Using exponential technologies to tackle the world's biggest challenges and build a better future for all. The word singularity, as it applies to technological change, refers to the point at which artificial intelligence becomes way smarter than human intelligence and goes its merry way. For most of us, it requires a leap of imagination so high as to be at times scary. Our home for SU Week was the 1960s-era NASA Ames Research Campus. My room, on the second floor of a long two-story motel-like building, had twin beds and two metal lockers ready for padlocks. I imagined that during the space race, engineers and astronauts slept here. The towels reminded me of what they issued us during my high school gym class. Our Spartan quarters were just steps away from the sprawling classroom and adjoining cafeteria both of which were open day and night. The spacious classroom was a converted dining hall, transformed with a variety of tables, a few sofas, lots of whiteboards, and a broad stage for speakers to pace around like Steve Jobs debuting a new iPhone. We ate our meals outside at picnic tables. There were about 70 of us students, ranging in age from 20-something to 60-something, mainly guys and mostly from outside the U.S. Most were in business, but one student was a Marine, and two were Navy SEALs. We spent 14 hours a day in classes, listening to inspiring and sometimes shocking addresses from some of the brightest bulbs in the silicone chandelier. Then on Thursday evening, Ray Kurzweil delivered what had been billed as his fireside chat. After dinner, the lights inside the classroom dimmed, and Kurzweil appeared, perched on a stool, flanked by two large monitors playing videos of logs ablaze, yet not consumed. He launched into a monologue. First, he reiterated his prediction made some years earlier that artificial intelligence will reach parity with human intelligence in 2029. Parity will be fleeting, however, as AI soars exponentially past us Bio bound humans. Humans have always used our tools to improve our capabilities, Kurzweil said. Artificial intelligence is no different. AI won't be a technology apart from us, it will be us. It is the natural outcome of the evolution we've been engaged in for millions of years. Evolution is simply going beyond natural biology and merging with and being enhanced by digital evolution. Our own biological brains are already being greatly aided by the exponentially growing digital neocortex. We are outsourcing our documents, our photographs, and our memories to the cloud, and we're just at the beginning. When he finished his chat and opened the presentation to questions, hands shot up. Finally, he acknowledged mine. The room went silent as a staff member jogged over to hand me the mic, and I stood to ask my question. Around the world, there are millions of people working hard to learn a foreign language. I'm one of them. What advice do you have for us? I was worried he might just say, Give up! Or something else dismissive. But he didn't. He began by explaining how our minds process language, how ideas are represented in a hierarchy in our neocortex. After a few seconds, I remembered to hit the record button on my phone, When we invented language, Kurzweil told the audience, I could actually take this hierarchy of symbols in my neocortex, which represented an idea, and I could transfer that to your neocortex, through the medium of language. Google Translate is pretty good now, he said, and getting better, but it won't be at human levels until we achieve human levels, which I think is 2029. And then... He paused to take a breath. I think we will use that technology to make ourselves better. I felt my shoulders relax. Language is not just a complete redundancy, as I'm sure you appreciate, Kurzweil continued. Different languages have different metaphors and different idioms, and can express things in poetic ways that you just can't do in another language. There are French expressions, Yiddish expressions, that you can't communicate in the same way in English. That's a general phenomenon. So, preserving languages that are about to go extinct is a very worthwhile endeavor. It's preserving a very valuable part of our human knowledge, both to study popular languages and orphan languages. Kurzweil then talked about his disagreement with Larry Page, who thought it was good that humans wouldn't have to work much in the future. Kurzweil doesn't see it that way. The point is to use technology not to make us weaker, but stronger. We can learn more languages, he said. We'll become better at it as we make ourselves smarter. Reflecting on his long answer to my question, I realize Kurzweil seems to be both a passionate technologist and a passionate humanist. Whether technology will replace human language skills is, in his mind, a matter for us to decide.
1: In some ways, we've already made that decision, maybe not as a conscious decision, but simply in the way we humans are programmed.
0: Why do we learn to paint when photography is so easy? Why do we plant our own gardens when we can buy vegetables? Why do we learn to cook when we can buy perfectly delicious prepared foods? We do these things because it feels good to work hard and improve our skills. In fact, doing things skillfully is one of the chief delights of life. We seek this feeling in much of what we do. What technology can do better than us is often irrelevant. Take sports. We could build robots that could trounce any professional sports team. But we don't. We do pit robots against each other with battle-bot contests, but even that is really a competition among the human designers, builders, and operators, rather than the machines which are mere extensions of our cleverness. The worldwide passion for sports is about what humans can achieve with our talent, training, drive, and teamwork. Although we're fine accepting training help from machines, we want to do it ourselves. From this perspective, to think we'll suddenly lose interest in the hard work of learning a language, merely because we don't have to, is to ignore the way we humans behave. We may be inherently lazy in many ways, but we seem also to be inherently hard-working in others. Think of the happiness a child shows when first walking, first putting words together into complete sentences, learning how to ride a bike. Those moments are some of the most joyful moments we humans have. Let's also keep in mind that our very struggling to use someone else's language with nothing more than our own mind and voice is a sign of commitment and respect. Lowering our defenses and being willing to speak like a child is tapping into the power of vulnerability, and that goes so very far in building trust. Merely putting a device between us and letting it do the work does little in that regard, although it can be very helpful for basic transactional work. We humans care about what other humans can do, and language is one of the main things that makes us human. Machine translation will likely lead to more human communication in general. But for the most important face-to-face communication, my guess is that we'll want to keep machines in their place. Machine translation is about as likely to replace language learning as artificial insemination is to replace sex.
1: I mentioned to you at the start of this episode that you'd be hearing portions of Chapter 34 of America's Bilingual Century. What I didn't tell you was the title, Technology Will Make Language Learning Obsolete. It's the second of 12 myths I expose about bilingualism in America. If you like what you're listening to, be sure to check out our earlier episodes in Season 4 to enjoy more chapters from America's Bilingual Century. If you'd like the whole book, it's available in print and ebook formats as well as audiobook. Just go to americathebilingualcom forward slash book. Plus, you'll find more excerpts and lots of reviews, including one from the well known technology writer, Kevin Kelly. My thanks to the America the Bilingual Project team, including Caroline Dowdy, our audio and digital book maven, Fernando Hernandez, and his production house, Esto No Es Radio, who provides sound design and mixing, Mim Harrison, our editorial and brand director, Carlos Plaza, our creative director, and Carla Hernandez at Daruma Tech, who manages our website, americathebilingual.com. I invite you to follow America the Bilingual on Facebook along with the Lead with Languages campaign run by our friends at ACTFUL, the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. Oh, and 2 musicians, we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod, performed Quasi-Motion at the start of the episode, and then we heard West in Africa by John Bartman. Thanks for listening. For America the Bilingual, this is Steve Levine.